Okay, I wonder what your um, response would be if I said to you tonight, well, we're not going to have a Bible study. Um, we're going to have a workshop. Some of you are going, no, please feel no. <laughs> don't worry, we're not going to. I'm just saying. Imagine if. Um, we're going to have a... Um, we're going to make a song. You're going to come up with a song. We'll put you in groups of two or three. Hypothetical. Um, you've got five minutes discussion with your somebody nearby, um, your partner, about what you're going to include in your new Christian worship song. Um, I wonder what the thrust of your song would be. Uh, would there be a refrain or a chorus in it? Yeah. <laughs> Will it be based on a biblical passage or verses in the Bible or maybe your experience of God? I wonder what the first verse would sound like. About the first line. Um, any thoughts? I don't have to have any thoughts, that's fine. <laughs> be about the Saviour. Okay, fine. Be about the Saviour. About God being good and great, yes. Thanking God. Yeah. Good ideas. About his marvellous characteristics. <laughs> yeah, marvellous characteristics. So it probably wouldn't be unreasonable to expect that our Christian song is going to begin with worship, maybe. Um, maybe something like Our Father, Who Art in Heaven, Hallowed Be Thy Name. You know, I think there was a song, wasn't there? That started off like that. Um, you know, a Christian song that might appear in the Bible. Sure, you'd expect something like that, wouldn't you? What about David? So David's going to write a song. It's going to be a psalm. He's a poet. He's a musician. How's it going to start? Catchy first line. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide your face in times of trouble? Feels shocking, doesn't it? It's quite jarring, really. It's certainly very unexpected. You know, not least, it follows on from Psalm 9, which is, by comparison, it's a very positive psalm. Um, and then we get to Psalm 10, and it starts off like that. I think you'll agree, I think you'll agree, it's a very unexpected start to a psalm. So our talk is called An Unexpected Psalm, and it has a very unexpected start. So why David's perplexity? He starts off, why, O oh Lord, why? Well, um, if you look at Psalm 1, verse 6, it says this, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Don't have to look all these verses up. But Psalm 1, verse 6 says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. David's general experience is the fact that the Lord does know what's going on with him. The Lord does watch over him. The Lord does care for him. But for David, right now, it feels as if the Lord doesn't know what's going on with him. It feels like the Lord isn't watching over him and it feels like the Lord isn't caring for him. In fact, as, David, as far as David is concerned, the Lord is hiding. This is not David's normal experience of the Lord. So David is very perplexed. And then we get to another reason why David's perplexed. In Psalm 1 verse 3 it says, Whatever the godly does shall prosper. In Psalm 1 verse 4, the ungodly are like chaff which the wind drives away. Okay, so we've got the, whatever the righteous does shall prosper and we've got the ungodly are like chaff which the wind drives away. However, David looks at the world he's in uh, and he comes to the conclusion the reverse is true. 
It's not the godly who are prospering. It's the ungodly who are prospering. And he mentions that in Psalm 10, verse 5. And the wicked do not seem to be like chaff, which the wind drives away. In fact, he's, the wicked, he says, say, I will not be moved. I will never be in adversity. And you find that in Psalm 10, verse 6. It says David, he believed God's word, but he couldn't see evidence of God's word coming to pass. He believed God's word, but God's word doesn't seem to be working like he thought it would. He's very perplexed, you know, he's very perplexed by this, and he says, why, O oh Lord, why? Okay, David, you're, you've gone off the rails, clearly. We can just dismiss this psalm. Well, no. Do his wives show him to be a shallow of a weak Christian? I wonder what you're thinking to this. Yeah, surely that must be the case. Well, I wonder if you ever found yourself in a situation where the providences of God in your life seem to be on a collision course with God's promises. You know, these are your experiences. There's God's promises. Well... They don't really seem to fit. Maybe you say, no, I've never had that problem. In my life, God's word has always worked for me. Well, as far as David's concerned, his experience and God's promises were not matching up. Sinclair Ferguson makes some really interesting observations. Just bear with me while I read what he puts. The reason David felt so perplexed, and perhaps why we do not feel like that, is probably because David took God's word seriously. David expected to see God keeping his promises. We, on the other hand, are in danger of not taking God's word seriously and therefore not 100% expecting God to keep his promises. And so if it happens, if it appears, sorry, that God is not keeping his promises, it really makes no difference in my life because I wasn't really expecting 100% him to keep those promises. But he then goes on to say, but when someone seriously believes the promises of God, then when God's promises don't seem to be working in a particular instance, that person inevitably says, Ask the question, why? So what's Sinclair Ferguson saying? He's saying, this isn't the cry of someone who's weak or shallow or superficial. This is the cry of someone who's known and experienced God keeping his promises to him in the past. In the very present, they are struggling to reconcile God's promises and their current situation, and they cry out to God, why? Okay. What about his wife? So they show him to be faithless, you know. Oh, David, you're lacking faith. He says, why do you stand a long way off? Why do you hide yourself? He doesn't begin with, if God is both almighty and good, then why? You know, it's not an intellectual quandary. It's not, a, it's not having a philosophical discussion with somebody. You know, if God is both almighty and good, then why? No, what's he doing? He's directly addressing God. Why do you stand a long way off? Why do you hide yourself? Now, we were talking on Sunday evening about Dale Ralph Davis, and everyone seems to be quoting him. He says, it is a devotional dilemma. He goes on to say, he doesn't understand the Lord, but he's still dealing with the Lord. And he says, that is being faithful. So I think that's quite helpful to understand. So we're saying that David isn't shallow or superficial. We're not saying David has no faith. Um, I mean, some Christians might give the impression that if you're right with God then you'll always be settled in your soul. Let's just stop and realise, this is David we're talking about. Okay? He had a really sound theological understanding of God, didn't he? David knew God. If you ask David questions about God's character, he'd tell you, well, God is just, God is righteous, God is holy, God is sovereign, God is good, God cares about me. You know, Psalm 23, 
The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. David wrote that. David knew God. But David also wrote Psalm 10, verse 1. So I think we should be encouraged. Uh, you know, people who love God, people who are very godly people, people who are dedicated to doing what is right, people who are purposing to live for the Lord, they can find themselves wrestling with tremendously overwhelming emotions and perplexing thoughts because of their circumstances. Okay? Tremendously overwhelming emotions, perplexing thoughts due to their circumstances. And if that's us, then we thank God for Psalm 10 because it's here for us to actually read. So it's probably worth us asking our own why. Why did the Lord take David through such an experience that caused him to cry out, why are you so far off? Why are you hiding your face? And why do we have such similar experiences? It causes us to ask those questions. We have to say, God is wise. God is all-knowing. God absolutely knows what's best for us. I think Ray said a couple of weeks ago, let God be God. So we can't question him. But Spurgeon has a thought on this. He said, if we were carried in the arms of God over every stream, then where would be the trial and where the experience which trouble is meant to teach us? So he's saying, you know, if we carried over every stream, how would our faith deepen? as a result of going through those experiences. So the first thought I want you to take away is this. Difficult circumstances can stir up overwhelming emotions, perplexing thoughts, and we must be prepared for that reality. Okay? Difficult emo- circumstances can stir up overwhelming emotions, perplexing thoughts, and we must be prepared for that reality. I mean, I doubt you and I are more spiritual than David. If this was David's experience, it's, I expect it would be ours too. So, back to the Christian song we're, we're writing. Uh, back into your pairs, groups of three. How many verses in your song? Uh, how many lines is it going to be? Are you going to mention God's mercy? Some of you are, I know, because you've just told me. Are you going to mention God's grace? You're going to mention Thanksgiving. Uh, are you going to mention that trial you faced? If you are, you know, what percent? 10% on the trial? 90% on God's mercy and grace and goodness and favour and righteous judgment? What's a good balance to go for? Well, Psalm 1, 2 and 3, about 10% of it is focused on the wicked, their triumphs. 90% is focused on God's mercy, God's judgment, God's triumph. Come to Psalm 9, that Dan managed to get last time. <laughs> Just 5% is focused on the wicked, 95% is on the Lord and his glory and majesty and his triumph. What's the risk of a bigger focus on the ungodly? Well, we can minimise God, can't we? So you know, we want a good balance in our, in our song. What's the biggest percentage you'd focus on your trial in this song? 20%? 25%? A whole quarter of it? Psalm 10. How much of the psalm is focused on David's enemy? The wicked man and his impact on David. 12 out of 18 verses. And you don't expect that. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. So we had an unexpected start. Guess what? We've got an unexpected middle. <laughs> the amount of inky spills describing the wicked man and his behaviour is more than half. 66.66. So why so many verses on David's enemy, this wicked man? We're going to go through these verses in a minute. Uh, there is an overwhelming weight to them. I've been studying them. It's 
it's you know we're going to fly through it so maybe the weight won't come to you but it's it's pretty overwhelming the weight there's a weight of evil terror oppression to this description I think the unexpected amount of ink spilled on this wicked man shows us David's enemy was not in his head David's enemy was not insignificant David had a very real enemy a formidable absolutely despicable enemy well hats off you're no longer um, writing a song you're now going to be pastoring David you know you're a good friend to him and you're going to come alongside him Godly David has got to the point where he's so down and so discouraged, what are you going to say to him? Don't worry, David. Just trust God. Don't worry about your circumstances. The reality is, though, isn't it, that uh, sometimes when we become fearful and discouraged, it's because there really is a very significant obstacle right before us. Uh, And the weight of this description of the wicked man says to us, you cannot be careless or dismissive over David's plight. So the first thought wanted us to take away was this. Difficult circumstances can stir up overwhelming emotions, perplexing thoughts. We must be prepared for that reality. The second thing, overwhelming emotions, perplexing thoughts we have might not be irrational. They might not be irrational there might be a really significant obstacle that you're facing. So before we come to this description of a wicked man, let's consider how we should feel when we read it. I think this is pretty important. Um, you might say, oh, this is David's enemy. History's that way. This is David's enemy a long time ago in the past. Or, well, if there are people like this in the world, I don't want to know, you know? Put my head in the sand. I don't want to really read the news or hear of atrocities. It's too upsetting, you know. I only want to hear about bunnies and beautiful flowers, you know. What, does God stick his head in the sand? Psalm 7, verse 11. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Oh, Phil, that's in the Old Testament. What do we read in the New Testament? Well, we've got a situation in the New Testament. Um, There are some men, they are proud, stubborn, unbelieving and oppressive men. So that's a group of men over here. Proud, stubborn, unbelieving, oppressive. Over here we've got a poor man, a disabled man, um, a vulnerable man, a defenceless man. It's the same man. He's got all those things wrong with him. He's a poor man. He's disabled. He's vulnerable and he's defenceless. And guess what? These proud, stubborn-hearted men um, are hoping to exploit this poor man. And they're going to try and catch Jesus out. What does it say? Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do, to do good or do evil, save life or kill? But they remained silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. What does it say Jesus does? Verse 5. He feels Jesus was angry. So, as we read these verses in a minute, be reminded that God is angry with these sins. You know, as we see them in the world, you know, we shouldn't just be complacent about it or, you know, just let it pass us by or get used to it, you know. We too should 
uh, we should too. Oh. Okay, well, <laughs> can't believe what it says there. It's a bit muddled, but anyway, we you know, we need to feel moved as we see it in the world around us. So, verse two. Um, first line of verse two, Psalm ten: The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Sinclair Ferguson notes this: The wicked man is particularly characterised in by his wickedness towards innocent and helpless. You know, what do you feel? This is this is wrong. You know, this wicked man is particularly characterised by wickedness towards the innocent and helpless. He says the quintessential characteristic of this wicked man is he's not going after the strong. He's going after the weak, the vulnerable. He's going after the one who can't defend himself. Also see here, which is the word pride. He embraces pride. He rejects humility. So David's enemy, in his pride, he's gloating over his ability to take by force what he wanted. He is a proud, brutal enemy. Lots of adjectives here. You can see how many you can remember by the time we get to the end. Proud, brutal. Verse 3. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He's characterised by boastfulness. Now, this isn't boasting in something good. If you look at it, according to the commentators, this is, you know, this is, well, you can see here, it's boasting of his heart's desires. Uh, he's boasting of his heart's cravings. His cravings for power. His cravings about what he can take by force. His cravings to destroy. His cravings to harm. And he blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. He's basically saying, Here's what I want. You help me get it, and we're friends. So this wicked person is gloating in what he can take by force, how he can destroy, how he can harm, and he's in alliance with others that do the same while renouncing the Lord. This is a boastful, cruel enemy. Verse 4. Anyone want to read verse 4 for me? The wicked in his proud countenance shall not see God. The wicked says, I'm not worried about God. There's nothing in my life that needs to come under the authority of God because I reject him. It's as if God doesn't exist. God doesn't register these thoughts at all. You know, it's quite scary, isn't it? When people are in a place like that, it's scary because what keeps them from doing evil? They say, well, I don't come under anyone's authority. No one is bigger or more powerful than me. I can do what I want. That's what this is saying. You know, this is an arrogant terrifying enemy. Verse 5. Somebody please. His ways are always possible. Your judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies he steers at. So he's having a lot of success in his wicked ways. He's haughty and sneering. God's justice and God's righteousness is far from his mind. He is haughty. He is a haughty, sneering enemy. Verse 6. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved, I shall never be in adversity. It's so arrogant, isn't it? Damn me. Think about a football game. A team come, a team has all the momentum, they're winning the game. Suddenly one thing happens and the momentum changes, just like that. One team was in control, they were dominant. All of a sudden the tide has turned and the other team has a, <coughs> the momentum. Momentum's a powerful thing. When momentum is on your side, it's hard to keep saying momentum. <laughs> Have a glass of water. When momentum is on your side, you can keep pressing forward. And this guy's got momentum on his side. No one can seem to stop him. He says, I'm invincible, I will never be moved. And he's not afraid of you because you can't touch me. If your enemy is convinced he's invincible, that's a conceited, 
an intimidating enemy. Verse 7. Someone please. His mouth Yeah. You can see here the use of his mouth. Cursing, deceit, oppression, trouble. He actually enjoys the taste and flavour of intimidating others. It's oppression. He enjoys minimising the weak. He enjoys the power of oppressing the needy. This is an oppressive, ruthless enemy. Verse 8 and 9, please, someone. Just a bit longer. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So we've got this wicked person. He's smart. He's meticulous. So this wicked person is smart, he's meticulous, he's planning, he's plotting. And in the midst of all that planning, all that plotting, all that meticulous care, what they're doing, they're looking away to destroy people, looking away to take their stuff, to satisfy their passions for greed, to take advantage of the most vulnerable. And it just so happens that this person has set their sights on you. That's why David feels the way he does. This is a crafty, underhanded enemy. Verse 10. Please, somebody... So he crouches, he lies low, but the helpless might fall by his strength. Thank you. It's by his strength. So he, he revels in destroying the helpless, those that are marginalised, and he does this by his strength. No one has ever got in his way without being kicked in the face. And it doesn't matter who gets in his way, he'll kick them in the face. What's his stock in trade? Weapon. It's intimidation. It's physical intimidation, moral intimidation... Social intimidation, intellectual intimidation. This is a strong, menacing enemy. Verse 11. Please, somebody. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten, he his face, he will never see. Yeah, doesn't get any better, does it? So, to cap it all, the wicked man is convinced God does not care, God does not see. He speaks, speaks of himself as immune from the holiness of God. From the judgment of God. This is an untouchable, unshakable enemy. So what's David's situation? Well, he has a very real enemy. A really bad enemy. What words do we use? Proud, brutal, boastful, cruel, arrogant, terrifying, haughty, sneering, conceited, intimidating, oppressive, ruthless, strong, menacing, untouchable, unshakable. So he's facing complex emotions and perplexing thoughts in a very difficult circumstance. And his fearful emotions, you know, they're not irrational. From the length of that description, we can see he has a terrifyingly horrific foe. So that was the unexpectedly, so that was the unexpected middle. Back to the Christian song we're writing. So you've written a song, you started writing a song. It goes into great depths about your pain. You've gone into great depths about your trial. You've mentioned how the Lord feels far from you. How are you going to wrap this up? Possibly focus back on God? Dare he include a prayer? Stop cheating, some of you. Maybe include a prayer, considering how, you know, dare he include a prayer, you know? God does feel a long way away from him. Maybe a gentle prayer. Something along the lines of number six. 
May the Lord bless me and take care of me. May the Lord be kind and gracious to me. May the Lord look on me with favour and give me peace. That would be a wonderful prayer to conclude the song. Could David bring himself to write something like that? Verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. So much for a gentle prayer. I mean, would we even class these as requests? These sentences request. Well, not really. I mean, a request is something like this, you know. Please, Lord, I pray that you will lift up your hand. That's more like a request. Just give me a prefix by, you know, please or something like that. What are these? Well, these, you know, getting back to spag, these are, um, you know, these sentence types. They're commands, aren't they? There's, you know, three imperatives here. Arise, lift up, don't forget. David isn't messing around here. He's saying, God, I've just laid out everything that I'm facing. Stand up. Stand on my behalf. Take action. <laughs> well, I think this is an unexpected end to an unexpected psalm, to be honest. You know, this is quite unexpectedly positive. David is confident, he's direct, and he's bold in the way he petitions the Lord. So as we come to this unexpected ending, we find two ways that David uses to find peace and settle himself. Okay, so you've got to think. He's disorientated, he's perplexed, he's overcome with his emotions, are in turmoil. And now he's going to settle himself, reorientate himself, and find peace. First thing he does is he cries out to God in prayer in verse 12 to 15. And secondly, he reminds himself of God's character and ways in verses 16 to 18. So let's briefly look at David's prayer. Verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. We've just looked at this. So first of all, David appeals to God to take immediate action. God, stand up, stand on my behalf, take action. Verse 13, someone read verse 13, please. This is part of David's prayer now. Why does the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. So what's going on here? Well, he's expressing to God his frustration with the wicked. And he's saying to him, God, their actions are mocking you. God, their actions are an insult to you. And when people act in a similar way to David's enemies, their thoughts, their motives, their decisions, their actions, they are all in the front of God. They're saying, there's no God who's going to take this into account. There's no God who's going to hold me responsible. I can do what I want. I have no limits. So what's David saying in verse 13? God take action they're mocking you verse 14 but you have seen for you trouble and grief to repay it by your hand the helpless commits himself to you you are the helper of the so, so David's looking at his enemy they're antagonistic they're overwhelming he feels that God is not near what do we see in that verse that Caroline's just read? God, you have seen, I know you're going to act for me. You know? <laughs> this is faith in action, isn't it? Saying, so you feel far away, God, and I can't see what you're going to do. I can't see how you're going to act, but I trust you. I trust that you have seen and will act for me. And he also mentions the word fatherless there. You are the helper of the fatherless. So if you lived in ancient times um, and you were fatherless, where you had no defender, no provider, um, no guide, you were very vulnerable. So when it uses that term, you know, this is the person who is the most defenseless. You know, this is somebody who needs a provider or a guide. So David's saying, Lord, you are the one who helps the fatherless. Well, this is me. I'm vulnerable. 
verse uh, verse 15 please it's an interesting verse Lift the arm of the wicked and the evil man seek out his weakness until his armor okay what's David praying here God this wicked man is using his arms to crush people please God cripple this man snap his arms mm. yeah it's quite brutal language isn't it but so he's saying, go after all the ways he's oppressing people and don't stop until it's dealt with. David's saying, sabotage and disable this man so that he's unable to continue to inflict pain and abuse the vulnerable. It's quite, quite brutal. So midway through the unexpected ending of this psalm, David is finding peace in two ways we just mentioned. First way, he's finding peace in prayer. 12 to 15, he's laying it out before God. Now the second way, he reminds himself of God's character and ways, and we're almost, we're almost complete. Uh, now, David knows in his head who God is. If you set David a test, questions about God's character and God's ways, David would give you the right answers. Um, but if you ask him in that moment how he feels about God, how he feels about God and what he would say on the test are probably two different things. So what did he have to do? He has to talk to himself. He has to speak truth to himself. What he knew to be true, he had to tell himself. Again, he has to remind himself about several truths about God and his ways. So remember, he's now trying to find peace, stability, reorientate himself. He's petitioned God quite a forthright way, and now he's going to speak truth to himself. And for us, we're no different to David, we've got to do the same thing. So, to finish up, five Stabilising facts about God and his ways that David reminds himself of. The first one, the Lord is king. Notice that phrase in verse 15, the Lord is king. That means there's no one higher than him. There's no one stronger than him. There's no one with greater authority than him. And the times when we need to remind ourselves that the highest human authority still answers to God. So the Lord is king. That's the first truth David reminds himself of. Second one, the Lord is king forever. He says the Lord is king forever. King Nebuchadnezzar was probably one of the most proud, arrogant, powerful, ruthless, brutal men of his generation. He probably had more blood on his hands than anybody in that time. Daniel 4, verse 34. Listen to these words. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. I blessed the Most High and I praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. What did Nebuchadnezzar realise? His own kingdom was temporary. God's kingdom is forever. Yes, wicked men have their seasons of power. But we have to remind ourselves their reign is temporary. The Lord's reign is eternal. The Lord is king forever. That was the second truth David reminded himself of. Thirdly, God will hear. You have heard the desire of the humble. Um, when my children were young, you know, maybe I would sometimes struggle to hear them, you know, they're whispering and talking. Now they're getting older, they're getting louder, but I seem to be getting deafer, so I still have to, <laughs> still have to stop and, you know, just pay attention to what they're saying. And, you know, we've got that tender picture, haven't we, in the Bible where in Psalm 116 it's got that picture of God inclining his ear to listen. It's not that he's deaf or struggles to hear, it's really saying, you know, he pauses to listen to us individually and specifically. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not praying up there to just, you know, whatever's out there. This is God inclining his ear to listen to what we have to say. So the third truth 
God will hear. That's the third truth David reminds himself of. Fourth truth. God will personally strengthen us in the midst of our struggles. It says in verse 17, you will prepare their hearts. Now we talk about God as king, uh, lofty, you know, there maybe. But this brings it into our personal lives, doesn't it? God comes right into our situation. He comes alongside me and he prepares my heart. It's quite a lovely thought. He's personally going to strengthen our hearts by his hands. So when we're going through hard times, we need God to come right alongside us and do that. So God will personally strengthen us. That's the fourth truth David reminded himself of. And lastly, God will personally come to your defence. You will cause your ear to hear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may oppress no more. Okay, so to wrap things up, the first thought to take away. Difficult circumstances can stir up overwhelming emotions and perplexing thoughts. We must be prepared for that reality. Second thought to take away. You can't always explain away every difficulty that stirs up those overwhelming emotions. Overwhelming emotions and perplexing thoughts we have, they might not be irrational. Absolutely not. For David, <laughs> it was significant. Third thought to take away. We need to recognise that there are at least two things we can do in those times. One, you need to go to the one who can help, and that's God. We've got Christian friends who can help us. But there are times when there is only one, only one person that's going to really be able to help in that situation. There's really desperate times, and that is the Lord. Two, in the midst of all the noise, midst of the fear, midst of the anxiety, we've got to speak truth to ourselves, truth about God. His character doesn't change. He's the same God who strengthened David thousands of years ago, and he's the same God who can strengthen us today.